Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Welcome to Advent. Four weeks of anticipating the celebration of the Incarnation. You know, we have a noon prayer service on Wednesdays in the upper room with communion. Noon prayer, scripture, prayer, communion, 45 minutes long, noon to 1245. And during the next few weeks, it will have an Advent theme to it. So I invite you to join us if you're able to be a part of that. Of course, uh, we're not that far away from the beginning of uh, Lent that will lead us to Easter. Um, Ash Wednesday is, I think, the uh, maybe the 26th, something like that. February 26th, I think, is right. Uh, and then, as we did last year, we are conducting a Lenten retreat at Conception Abbey. Friday and Saturday, February 28th and 29th. We got a 29th of we're going to we're going to leap or something, I don't know. February 28 and 29 at Conception Abbey. 24 hours unplugged. You turn in your phone and we did this last year it was very well received. We're doing it again. It will fill up. I mean, you know, so when it's full, it's full because we only have so much space there. Uh, so if you're really interested, you should probably register today. You can do that online. Go to wolc.com. You'll be able to find it there and register. If you're interested in that, for our Lenten prayer retreat, February 28 and 29. Amen. All right, let's take a moment and pray uh, one more time. Father God, I want to take this moment and dedicate, on behalf of all who are here, this season of Advent. Lord, we live in an impatient society. We're always rushing. May this season of Advent teach us to wait. May we have the gifts of patience seeping deep into our soul because we learn how to wait on you. I know the prophet Isaiah said, They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Lord, I pray that this season of Advent would be a season of waiting where here at Word of Life Church we renew our strength. We dedicate this season of Advent to waiting on you and the new strength that will flow into our life as a result of that. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, Amen. During the four Sundays of Advent, we're going to be waiting for Christmas with Isaiah. We're going to use the Old Testament scripture readings for the four Sundays of Advent that we find in the Revised Common Lectionary, and this year they're all from Isaiah, because Isaiah was really good at writing Christmas cards, not knowing that's what he was doing. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah for the next four Sundays prophecies in Isaiah that Christians have come to associate with Christmas. Uh, This first message today is entitled, In the Light of Christ. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah 
and Jerusalem. So we're going to be with Isaiah. We're going to be waiting for Christmas with Isaiah. Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet whose ministry spanned nearly 50 years in the 8th century B.C. In other words, Isaiah is doing his ministry seven centuries before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. His wife was a prophetess. And uh, Isaiah was inspired to speak on behalf of Yahweh. The primary medium for his prophecies was poetry. So Isaiah was a poet who was a prophet, whose poems spoke prophetically of what God was doing. After the coming of Christ, seven centuries after the time of Isaiah... After the coming of Christ, the book of Isaiah became the favorite book of the early Christians. You understand that when Jesus is raised from the dead, there is no New Testament yet. Paul will start writing his letters in the 40s and 50s. Jesus raised around the year AD 30. Late 40s and into the 50s, Paul's writing his letters. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not written until the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so for the first generation of Christians, their Bible was what we would call the Old Testament. And their favorite book in the Bible was Isaiah because they saw so much of Jesus there. Some people have called it the fifth gospel. Along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have Isaiah, although you could also call it the first gospel. Because before any of the gospels were written, Christians read Isaiah in the light of Christ. Now, the Christian practice of reading the Old Testament in search of Christ was introduced by Jesus himself. On the day of the resurrection, Jesus appears to two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, but Jesus appears incognito. They don't seem to recognize him. And so they walked for a couple of hours on this road, and they were expressing their great disappointment that Jesus has been crucified and buried, and they were saying, we were hoping that he was going to be the one, that he was the Messiah, that he would be the Savior, that he would be the Redeemer. And Jesus, incognito to them, says, well, you guys just don't understand the Bible. And he begins to teach them the scriptures, and we're told in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. That right there provides the lens, the template, the practice for how Christians read all of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament. That we go looking for Jesus. When we open up our Bible, what we want to do is not just get some facts and history and all of that, what we're really interested in is finding Jesus. And Jesus is the one who teaches us to interpret all the scriptures about himself. You can say amen. Amen. Now, reading the Hebrew scriptures as ultimately about Jesus is not the only way to read the Hebrew scriptures. I want to put this disclaimer out there. In the 21st century, I'm not about to tell Jewish people that how they read their Bible is wrong if they don't read it in search of Jesus. I'm not not here to bring that kind of correction or say that. I'm not saying that. I won't say that. 
What I will say, though, is that this is a Christian reading of what Christians call the Old Testament. This is how we approach as Christians. This is how we approach the Old Testament. We do so looking for Jesus because Christians make this claim that all Scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That what we would call the Old Testament is looking forward. It's anticipating. It's it's setting forth some hope. There are prophecies. There are things that are yet to come. And Christians confess that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those hopes, all of those dreams, all of those promises, all of those scriptures. When we read the Old Testament, we do so in search of a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the interpretive practice that was first set forth by Jesus himself as he talked to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. So, interpreting the Old Testament in the light of Christ is first given to us by Jesus, and it becomes the practice of Paul and of all of the apostles. It's the practice of the early Christians and the church fathers. Quite simply, this is how Christians interpret all of Scripture. We do so in the light of Christ. So, If in the Old Testament we find a passage of Scripture where we can't seem to find Jesus, then guess what? We don't have much to say about it. Because our whole point of going into the Scriptures is to find Jesus. But that won't be a problem for us today. So let's look at our our prophecy from Isaiah, because we're waiting for Christmas with that old guy. And then the... 8th century B.C., 700 years, some 700 years before Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus, Isaiah gives us this poem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. This was one of the most popular texts interpreted in the light of Christ by the early Christians. So if if you were a believer in Jesus in the year A.D. 50, This would be one of your favorite scriptures. You would hear a lot of sermons on this. You would probably have this memorized. It was very popular. Now what's interesting is, these earliest Christians, for the first several centuries, they didn't see this as a prophecy of things to come, but as a prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus. That when Isaiah penned his prophetic poem, it lay in the future. But for those early Christians that were reading it, they say, oh, no, 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 now it's happened. We live in the days of the fulfillment of what Isaiah had anticipated. So let's read this prophecy again. 
But this time, let's, let's take our time with it and let's do so in the light of Christ. Let's see how this works. In days to come. Again, this is written in 700 B.C. And so Isaiah, son of Amos, the prophet in Jerusalem, says days are coming when? But early Christians said, and now they've arrived. Merry Christmas. The early Christians said this is what was anticipated. This is what was waited for, but with the coming of Jesus those days have come. That's why, that's why those early Christians were just so joyful all the time. They had so much good news. They were saying, it's come to pass. What we've waited for has arrived. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Here's a prophecy about Jerusalem, but even more significantly about the temple, the Lord's house. And Isaiah says, you know, in days to come, all the nations are going to stream into the Lord's house. Nations meaning Gentiles. Now see, at this time, you know, it's, temple worship is exclusively Jewish. But Isaiah says, you know, days are coming. When all of the nations and all of the Gentiles and all the peoples are just going to come streaming into the house of the Lord. Later on, much later in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah will say this. That the house of the Lord shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations. All of the peoples, all of the Gentiles. Well, this never happened in Isaiah's day. It never came to pass in Isaiah's day or in Nehemiah's day. Or in Ezra's day. Or in Zerubbabel's day. But Jesus draws upon that. Remember, when Jesus was protesting the corruption in the temple, He said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. For Isaiah prophesied that it shall be a house of prayer for everybody. So what we have is we have an anticipation of how the house of the Lord is going to be redefined. First of all, it's not a, it's, it's not, it's not a physical building. But it's going to be a house. It's still a temple. Why do you have a temple? Well, so that God can dwell in it. But our temple is not made of stone or brick and mortar. It's made of living stones, of people. And participation in the house of the Lord is now redefined from the exclusive way of ethnicity, circumcision, Torah observance, to the inclusive way of faith baptism, and allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Amen. That's, that, see, that, see how that opens the door up? Before it was, you have to be the right ethnicity, men have to be circumcised, there's all this Torah observance, can't eat shrimp. <laughs> and now it gets changed. And now participation in the house of the Lord is redefined. Do you believe in Jesus? Be baptized and pledge your allegiance to Jesus as Lord and you're part of this thing. That's how, that's, how we, that's how the early Christians read this in the light of Christ. And it's how it should be read. And, and my goodness, it's come to pass. The nations have streamed into the house of the Lord. Because Jesus isn't building a physical temple. Jesus is building a community of allegiance to him. 
And this thing that is born, it's, it's certainly it's born in Jerusalem, but it goes around the world. No movement in history, there's, no, there's not even any comparison, no movement in history has been more diverse than the Christian movement. They have come to Jesus Christ from every nation, every ethnicity, the rich and the poor all around the world. In every nation there are today, whether in great gatherings or in very secret gatherings, there are those that gather together as the house of the Lord because they have believed, they've been baptized, and they've pledged their allegiance to Jesus. They're a part of that new temple, that new house of the Lord. Verse 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, which we understand as the church, that he, that he, that he, the Lord, Yahweh, in Isaiah's understanding, but now we understand that Yahweh has come to us, that uh, what, what's the great Christmas name for Jesus? What's the great Christmas name for Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. That, that God will teach from the house of the Lord, we understand, oh, that's Jesus who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Amen. So Jesus comes and he teaches. And it all reaches a, a climactic finale in Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified and raised and where the disciples are gathered together on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. And remember what Jesus said. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Matt, I want to pause right there and say something. Uh, I, get, I get tired of people speculating on what politician God has raised up. You know, the D's say it's their guy, and the R's say it's their guy, the donkey say it's a donkey, and the elephant says it's an elephant. I say, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Jesus. God isn't raising up a politician. He raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority. Dang, that's good. Yes, 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 it's that good. Okay, what was I saying? Oh, all right, oh no, I was Matthew. Matthew. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus comes and he teaches his disciples, but he tells them, Now, no, don't keep this like secret knowledge. Now you go and you tell people the story of my life, that's the gospel. And as they believe, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you then teach them to observe all the things that I've taught you. And so that my word continues to go forth and they will learn to walk in my ways. And so that's what the church's task is to do. It's to make Disciples, that is followers of Jesus. That is people who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus and say, I'm going to walk in a new way and I'm going to live in a new way. 
I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to live the Jesus way. Amen. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All right, for the first, well, not just the first decade, not just the first generation, but really for the first three centuries, when Christians read that, they said, Amen. 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 We're not to participate in turning the world into a battlefield. We're to participate in turning the world into a garden. They read this and they said, Jesus has come and Jesus has abolished war. The nations of the world may wage their wars, but we're not going to participate. We're opting out because now has come the time with the coming of Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ, that we should beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Now, what's interesting is the early church, don't, think, don't get me wrong, uh, they, they argued about everything. It wasn't, it wasn't like uh, a golden age. They debated and they argued and they fought about everything, some important, some not so important. They argued about the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, how the church should be formed and governed. They argued about who was qualified to be a bishop and who wasn't. They argued about what books should be in the Bible. They argued about all kinds of things, but they never argued about this. If you'd said uh, to any Christian, the first, should Christians participate in war? They would, no, of course not. That was not controversial. I understand it's controversial now. And so if you don't like this, you can say, I like what the church did later on. Later on, the church changed its mind. So you can go with that. So they, I give you permission to go with Augustine and some others. Just remember, though, it does lead to the two great world wars in Europe where Christians in the name of nationalism killed one another by the millions. So you got that little problem to deal with. Uh, but for the first 300 years, Christians just said, no, no, we're going to just... Uh, we're going to do what Isaiah said would be done when the Savior comes. We're going to turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning We're not interested in battlefields. We're inter interested in gardens of redemption, and that's how they lived. That's how they lived. They did it. They pulled it off. Amen. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And as Christians, how do we understand Lord? When I say Lord, you think... Come, let us walk in the light of Jesus. All right? How about we go to the New Testament for a little bit? We have a few minutes left. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And without Him, not one thing came into being. What came into being in Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through Him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Amen. I love that. In the beginning was the Word. Many of you know the Greek word for that is, you know what it is? Logos. 
There's a lot of different ways to understand that word. One common way of understanding is, is the eternal wisdom of God. In the beginning was the eternal logos wisdom of God. God created all the universe with his wisdom. Do you understand? God knows stuff. He knows stuff. And God didn't just say, ah, you know, let there be and we'll see how it works out. No, God has, God has wisdom. And, and wisdom was with God and wisdom was God. And wisdom was with God participating in the act of creation. This is alluded to in Proverbs chapter 8 where wisdom is present with God. All right, so wisdom, the eternal wisdom of God is participating with God in creation. And it says that this light of the wisdom of God, uh, well, how does it say? It says, uh, in him was life and the life was the light of all people and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. So the light of God's eternal wisdom was always in the world, always. It was always in the world in some way, either through natural revelation, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, or in the very specific revelation given to the Jewish people through the law and the prophets. They had a very specific revelation when anointed men and women like Moses and the prophets bring forth revelation about God. So, even though the world is in a land of darkness through idolatry, the light was still present through natural revelation and through the specific revelation given to the Hebrew people. The darkness of idolatry was never able to overcome the light of Logos wisdom. But Christmas, which we are anticipating and moving towards, is not about the light of Logos wisdom of creation or that the Hebrews had, or that maybe even people like Plato had some aspect of that. No, 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 no. Christmas is about the eternal light of God's Logos wisdom becoming a human life. God's eternal wisdom, which was with God and which is God, and through which God created the universe. This wisdom wasn't now just shining in some way through some kind of revelation or through perceiving the creation and knowing there's a creator behind it or through what the Hebrews are doing or through what Plato was doing or whatever. Now, the, the Logos light of eternity, the wisdom of God that's always been with God, becomes a human life, a baby born in Bethlehem who grows up in Nazareth, who as a young man begins preaching in Galilee, who in Jerusalem is crucified, but on the third day raised to newness of life. Now, the Logos light of God's eternal wisdom has become a human life. So that we can say this, Jesus is perfect theology. Not just what Jesus taught, although that's perfect too, but the life he lived is a perfect revelation of God. The life of Jesus is the true light shining in the darkness. Look at verse 9 again. 
The true light which enlightens everyone, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Wednesday night we, uh, we lit our Christmas tree out there, sang carols, heard the Christmas story read by a child. And we lit our trees and we have our, we have our trees in here with our Christmas lights. See, this is what Christmas lights are about. The true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world through the life of Jesus, who is perfect theology, not just in his teaching, but in the life he lived. The life of Jesus is the true light shining in the dark world of idolatry and injustice. Christ has given us an entirely new way of being human. In the light of Christ, we discover, oh, there's a different way to go about this business, this task of living a human life. So now we know, by looking at Jesus in the light of Christ, we know what a right and righteous, a whole and holy life looks like. It looks like Jesus. By looking at Jesus, we know what God is like. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but now we do. You know that, I hope, by now. But also, we know how humans who are to bear the image of God are to live by looking at Jesus. So he's, Because Jesus is fully God, right? But he's also fully human. He's fully God, fully human. That baby wrapped in swallowing clothes lying in a manger in Bethlehem is the eternal logos of God become a human being. And the eternal logos of God who is God, fully God, became a human being, fully human. So that when we look at Jesus, we discover two things simultaneously. We discover who God is, what God is like, and how human beings who are called to bear the image of God should live their lives. The true light which enlightens everyone comes into the world through the life of Jesus. So, for example, in the light of Christ, we know that narcissism is a distortion of the soul because in the life of Jesus, we see the beauty of self-sacrifice. In a pre-Christ pagan world, maybe you think, you know, well, the way to go about life is just to try to make it all about yourself. To live for number one and try to get the whole world to revolve around you. That, that may have been a way that we thought about it when we were in the darkness. But in the light of Christ... We know that narcissism is a deformity of the soul because in the life of Jesus, we don't find Jesus trying to make the whole 